0: To a very special edition of Rebellion Research's educational series. Today we're going to tackle real estate with two of the most brilliant minds around. We have the Dean's Chair of Real Estate from Wharton, Jill Durant, and we have the Dean of NYU Institute of Real Estate, Sam Chandon, also a former Wharton professor and student here to talk to us today. Thank you so much gentlemen for coming on today.
1: Delighted to be Thank you here. for inviting us.
0: So let's jump right into the Dean's recent article in Forbes magazine about the issues with rent and how many of these rent holders are behind in their payments. Why don't you give us some of the numbers and introduce us to the subject?
2: Sure, well, I think what we've seen over the course of the pandemic is that uh, in the broader labor market, there's been a significant increase in the number of people that are unemployed. And We've all seen that in the numbers, a more significant decline in employment a bigger increase in the unemployment rate uh, and and more abrupt than what we've seen during any previous crisis during uh, our lifetimes. Uh, While the numbers are certainly improving, uh, we've seen in the last couple of months that millions of people uh, have been able to get back to work, many of them folks that were on temporary layoff that have been able to return to their job. Um, The overall uh, unemployment picture in the United States uh, remains very troubling. Uh, very soon after uh, the pandemic took hold in the United States, the uh, Congress uh, and executive branch worked to uh, pass the CARES Act. Um, and that included a number of different provisions that were designed to support Americans that had seen interruptions to their salary incomes. Um, one of which was uh, the, uh, um, the economic impact payments, the, the stimulus checks. Uh, another key one uh, for Americans that had lost their jobs. Uh, was uh, an enhancement to the unemployment benefit um, on the order of $600 a week. And in fact, that creating some controversy in the market uh, because of concerns in some circles that such a large enhancement to uh, unemployment benefits might actually create a disincentive for people to get back to work. It's unclear uh, if uh, the empirical evidence actually supports uh, that, uh, that, that conjecture. Uh, another important provision was one that uh, provided for an eviction moratoria for properties with federally backed mortgages. So if you were living in an apartment building that had a mortgage from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, um, you know, restrictions on the ability of those borrowers to actually evict tenants that were unable to make their payments. We also saw a patchwork of moratoria in cities and states across the country. So where I'm based in New York City, uh, you know, landlords, irrespective of how they financed their properties, were not able to evict tenants you know, uh, in the midst of the crisis. The challenge for us right now, to, to, to wrap this up, um, is that many of those protections have expired. Uh, local eviction moratoria in many uh, locations across the country much of the the federal restriction uh, on uh, on evictions uh, that, again, applies to a subset of uh, multifamily properties in the United States, uh, but also the enhanced unemployment benefits that we know from various relatively high-frequency data that we're getting, at least by macro standards, the Census Pulse survey data that we're looking at every week, does tell us that people who've lost their jobs are relying, have been relying heavily on these supplemental sources of income to actually pay rent. Um, as these benefits and supplements have run out, some very real concern about what will happen uh, to renters. One last point to make is that we should keep it in perspective. What we know is that the overall demand picture for rental apartments in the United States is weaker, weaker than it was in the pre-pandemic uh, environment. And what that means is that if tenants are not able to pay their rent in full, it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be evicted. Uh, in talking to you know property owners, developers, um, you know, multifamily REITs, what we see in many cases is that Um, It makes sense um, and is optimal for the landlord to negotiate a a deferral on rent, sometimes to negotiate the tenant into a lower rent that they can still make the payment. Um, Those kinds of um, mitigation strategies are uh, very often preferable uh, to uh, an outright eviction in a weak demand environment Uh, that can be a uh, lose-lose for both the tenant and for the landlord. Where we see the real risks concentrated is with relatively lower income Americans, and there's necessarily um, a correlation uh, with race and other uh, socioeconomic uh, measures here. When we look at, for example, uh, black households in the United States, uh, something on the order of about 30% uh, in the last month were not able to actually make their rent payment or have had their rent deferred. You know, that's really uh, the, you know, the the locus of uh, what we believe will be uh, the uh, housing um, you know dislocation crisis. Professor oh, Duranton, would you like to expand?
1: Yes, I fully agree with Sam. Let me add two, two further considerations. I think there are two tensions to this story. The first one is the tension between the short run and the longer run. I think the key word with here should be relief. And there's an overwhelming argument, actually, for relief to be provided during the depths of the crisis. Then, of course, you don't want those provisions to become permanent, like preventing revictions in the long run would be well, a terrible idea. We know it breeds all sorts of bad behavior in the long run by, well, by tenants and by owners as well who cannot kick out well, tenants in, in the normal way. So they will do well, all sorts well, of bad things We have to do that instead. So the problem is that when, how do you phase this out? How do you will terminate it? Uh, It's a hard set of questions, but what we know is that doing it now would be way too early. We're still deep into here in this COVID crisis that's going to last for another six to nine months. You know, you need to provide relief in the short run for these people. You need to help. Then the second tension is indeed uh, implicit in what Sam was saying, which is this tension between top-down relief What the federal government does and indeed all sorts of local well arrangements will bottom up between tenants and landlords so i think the challenge for the federal government is actually to do that in a way that doesn't crowd out all those all that goodwill between tenants and um, and landlords between cities and their, and their landlords, and so on and so forth, trying to make sure all those things work together. Of course, it's really easy well, to say well, from my office here, it's much harder in practice, but this is the second really big tension that needs to be well negotiated. And one last point, we know from the Great Recession that people are willing to go to extreme uh, well, to extreme lengths to actually pay their rent, pay their mortgage and stuff. So it's really, again, it's relief and it's, re- it's not going to be with something with well long run and it shouldn't be with something with well long run.
2: Yeah, I'll elaborate on a point that Jill made, which I think is critically important, uh, which is that you know a lot of the focus has been on the tenant. Um, uh, and sometimes, you know, in very many cases, the tenant not being able to make uh, his or her rent payment. One of the challenges in managing you know, the eviction moratoria, trying to make sure that we get the timetable for this, uh, uh, one that sort of, you know, addresses the immediate crisis, but doesn't persist longer than that, um, but also uh, needing to be careful when uh, we impose, in some cases, blanket moratoria. HUD and others have been, you know, out there saying at the same time as we're uh, putting in place a moratorium on evictions, if you can pay your rent, it's essential that you do. Um, So one of the other uh, lenses through which we're assessing uh, the developments in this market is look at what's happening with relatively small landlords. There's sometimes an assumption on the part of policymakers and others that, you know, every multifamily landlord owns a large class A portfolio of high rise assets in urban courts. The vast majority of landlords in the United States own very small properties. They might have five units, 10 units, the proverbial mom and pop owner. And what we see there is that when a significant number of tenants are unable, uh, or in some cases, uh, choose not to pay their rent, uh, that that has a significant impact on the landlord's ability to uh, make mortgage payments, make property tax payments to maintain the property uh, in in a reasonable way. Uh, So those are all, I think, you know, considerations for us as well. Uh, we we're just having a dialogue with the National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals. And one of the things that they pointed out you know, with their constituency is that many of the owners you know, are community based. They're renting to other people in their community. But that mom and pop owner of the property is sometimes a little bit older. And the rental income um, is sometimes effectively their retirement income. So there are very real knock-on effects, um, and, uh, that uh, are, that need to be addressed uh, when we're thinking about uh, you know tenants uh, facing challenges in paying their rents. There are uh, a, a wide, there's a wider and broader multifamily ecosystem that's also impacted.
0: Uh, now, I've seen some really quite scary numbers, and in fact, a Rebellion Research client was saying that they had seen as many as 35% of low-income families across the US were behind. And I saw in your article it was 20% on average were behind. Could you tell us a little bit more about the numbers of who's behind, where, what, and and elaborate on that, please?
2: Sure. So we don't have a census of of, uh, renters in the United States that's updated monthly that we would know sort of how they're faring. Um, But there are data sources available. Uh, Probably the most widely cited is from the National Multifamily Housing Council, NMHC, a rent payment tracker that's updated every month. The underlying data for that is provided by RealPage and I believe four other um, uh, software companies uh, that provide yield management software uh, used in buildings uh, to essentially manage rent levels, occupancy, What's that? That data shows that uh, the deterioration in rent payment rates um, has been very, very small. We're, you know, we're effectively on par with where we were, you know, in July and August of last year. You wouldn't know that we were in the midst of a, you know, a, a crisis as a country. Uh, looking at uh, looking at that data, Doug Bibby, the um, uh, CEO of National Multi Housing Multifamily Housing Council, though has been careful to point out that as some of these protections, like the enhanced unemployment benefits, run out. Or uh, the PPP that uh, that Jill mentioned—that um, you know these—that um, uh, you know, that we may see a deterioration in these numbers. What's critical to keep in mind is, you know, what's the underlying pool of data that we're looking at. And with the NMHC data, it's professionally managed apartments. On average, these are going to be larger buildings. They're going to be much more affluent tenants. They're going to be folks. Like all of us who work in professions where we've had the, the benefit uh, and very good luck of being able to pick up our laptops in March, go home, plug it back in, you know, and, and get going again. Um, you know, they're not necessarily tenants that have uh, been significantly disrupted in terms of uh, you know their income uh, during the pandemic. When we look at the pulse data uh, from Census that allows us to break down uh, by income category, uh, by size of household what we see is that the most significantly impacted households you know, are those that are relatively lower income. Uh, but we also see that there is uh, that, that, uh, there's a more significant impact on relatively larger households. So when we see people living in multi-generational families, for example, with six or seven other people in the household, uh, they're far more likely to have been impacted um, in terms of their ability to pay rent, you know, their income, and the rent payment rates there are substantially lower. What's important to keep in mind also is that living in relatively uh, more congested housing circumstances and with folks more likely to be working in professions where they are actually uh, co-locating uh, with others, uh, putting themselves at greater risk for, uh, you know, for, uh, for, for COVID-19, um, that there are a, a multiplicity of factors that are contributing to not only greater uh, income interruptions, but a, a greater likelihood that they might actually uh, be impacted by coronavirus. And this is why I think in the dialogue, you also see you know, a, a great deal of discussion uh, around the data that quite clearly shows a disproportionate impact from the economic downturn and the pandemic uh, on communities of colour and others.
0: Dean's, Deans Chair Duranton. Do you believe we will enter a homelessness crisis in the next year or two in the U.S.?
1: Well, there might be be a spike uh, of people on the streets. Uh, At the same time, I think long-term homelessness, as we see it in some cities, is something that's radically different from what we're talking about. You know, these are people who have big mental health issues, who have uh, chosen, or have been pushed into, well, a way of life, and so on and so forth, which, you know, is calls is, it will is something will very well structured and endemic, and it calls for a long-term response. Well, the problem here if we see a big wave will of will of addiction, lots of people will have a support network, will have family members, and so it will not be nice. It's. This is something well to be well avoided. But at the same time, you know, we're not going to get millions of people out in the streets. Well, uh, during the winter, this is not going to happen. There will be some, but well, unfortunately, like some people, will be pushed and. They, will not have well, the right network. Uh, their eviction will also will coincide with all sorts of other problems, and indeed they may end up in this permanent well, long-term situation. That's very sad. So this is one more. Uh, so this is one more reason well, to avoid that. At the same time, this is not going to be. This is not going to be with well, the main thing. I think. So again, to avoid that, we need to think about some nitty-gritty of the housing business. But we, I think, with well, the main tool, it will is really unemployment benefits. Uh, we're keeping uh, income for people who have seen whether well, their income will disappear or go down well very well substantially, keeping some money will flowing in, which is important for housing, but it's important for all economic activity. The last thing we want is a big crunch in demand that's going to destroy us for many, many years because then firms go bankrupt and so on and so forth. And all those effects are self-reinforcing. I mean, if anything, actually, what's happened in this country and in Europe has been hugely successful so far. We've managed to keep the economy going despite a major, major shock like nobody has ever seen before in whatever, more than a hundred years. So that's been a tremendous success, but pulling the plug right now would be a major, major mistake.
2: And to add uh, to that briefly, or Gilles raised a a really important point very early in our discussion was that people do find ways to pay their rent. You could imagine um, an outcome where it's not necessarily that people are actually finding themselves on the streets. Um, and the populations we're talking about as compared to, you know, the chronic homelessness in the United States are, are very different. As Jill pointed out, you know, there, there's a coincidence of mental health issues as well. Uh, but uh, to his earlier point about, you know, people going to extreme measures uh, to pay their rent and to maintain that housing security, you could imagine a scenario where, um, you know, the rebalancing of expenditures in the household budgets to support housing means less on healthcare, on food, on education, on uh, you know uh, proximity to work, um, and spending less on those other very important things. Um, you know, ultimately having an impact on you know social and economic mobility of those households. Uh, that is an outcome that will play out over a much longer period of time, but one that you know will also be pernicious in terms of you know its impact on. You know, socioeconomics in the United States. Another thing I'll mention here is that, you know, for both Gilles, myself, and many others, you know, a, a crisis in the rental market and in housing, uh, particularly around issues like affordability, uh, is not something that uh, has emerged with the crisis, uh, we, you know, with the health crisis, with the recession. You know, these have been issues that uh, have been characteristic of segments of uh, the residential and, and real estate markets in the United States for many years um and that uh, i think we've all been you know uh, acutely aware of and, and hoping to you know, raise uh, the, the the profile uh for uh, and bring more attention to
0: great so you guys see people being able to pay uh their 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 rents essentially and that we won't have a homelessness crisis you know we might have a spike in homelessness but not uh, a full full blown crisis and uh no that's uh, fantastic i you know but from that uh, I've got to ask, what about returning to work? Is this stay-at-home? Uh, is, is this going to happen you know, forever? I mean, are, are we going to be going back to work? Or will companies need so much more space now for social distancing that, that'll that mitigate the loss of demand? W- where do you guys see the two uh, juxtaposing? Joe?
1: Okay, let me go first. So, yes. yeah, there's a trade-off at the moment that we see for demands for... We typically will full office space where trying to bring well people back to work means actually using more space per person but at the same time fewer people are going back to work or people going back to work less often I mean at work in the workplace when well, less often and actually uh, when well working from home and so on and so forth so at the same time this trade-off is going to be short-lived you know as soon as we can function again and you know Um, I don't have a crystal ball here, but hopefully within whatever nine months, uh, there'll be a vaccine and we'll be able to resume. At the same time, it will not be resuming well as before because this crisis is accelerating lots and lots of changes. So what are firms going to do? It's hard to know. There was actually a survey of firms and firm uncertainty that was done in June. And they were asking firms if they were planning to change the amount of Space that those firms use, and most of the firms were saying, no change, uh, which at the same time seems to, you know, clash with our expectations that many of us say, okay, yeah, we can make it work from home, and maybe I'll, I'll stay at home two days a week or three days a week instead of one or instead of zero. So you know, like pre pre COVID, only about. of workers where... I think
0: working from home is much more inefficient. And most of the CEOs I've spoken to agree that there's just no comparison. However, for more menial jobs and tasks, uh, be it uh, sales or customer service, where the actual act in itself is not fulfilling, working from home can be a nice subsidy. And for certain technology companies that will offer anything to attract talent, it can be a nice uh, sweetener to bring in you know, an employee. But as a, you know, a, a boss, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to find the same level of efficiency from you know, an educated worker at home as you would at the office, at least from
1: what I've found. So indeed, so, indeed there's some evidence that was published well, some years ago where they did a field experiment, i.e., They got a big world company on board, and among those clerical workers, sent basically half of them back home for a period of up to a year. And what they found actually is that those guys were more productive from home. But we're talking about a lower segment of the labor market, not the most Yes, I agree. lower segment
0: would be more productive at home. That
1: makes sense. And what I think, so at the same time, you know, even highly skilled people, if you stay home maybe a day or two a week, That may not be the end of the world. You may be able to work differently and so on and so forth. And in the office market, you know, like like going from 10% of the labor force working from home to 40, that's a major, major shock. So it may actually bring... Really, really important, well, consequences. But at the same time, you know, firms saying we're not planning to make any change, I think they're just waiting and seeing and trying to analyze what's going on, trying to assess indeed uh, who's benefiting staying from home, uh, for whom it's more costly, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, those changes will accelerate uh, or are going to happen way faster relative to a situation where we would not have had this crisis. At the same time, it's, you know, it's real estate. All those adjustments take very long. You know, Even if firms say, okay, we're going to cut our space by 20%, you just do not do that well. Well, right away. Right? You, well, you need to reorganize the physical space. It's costly. And you may say, okay, we're not going to do it. But well, next year, actually, there was a, re- a renovation due in three years. So maybe we'll bring it forward in two years. So all those things take, actually, a, quite a bit of time. So I think we'll see where the we'll see what the consequences maybe in three, five years. My bet is that there will be nonetheless less demand for less demand for office space. Uh, it's already been priced actually when you look at the at read prices, uh, it's already been priced like the price of wheat has gone down more than the lost income in the next whatever year or so. It means that they do expect something will going down. But again, at the end of the day, you know, firms are still in a position where they're trying to assess, trying to understand, and reorganizing, reorganizing with the space, moving, and so on and so forth. All those things take a very long time. Uh, Dean
2: Chandon, do you have anything to add? I think you know the, the you know that uh, critical point that Jill is making that you know many of these adjustment processes in real estate happen slowly, so it'll take some time for us to understand, and that you know when we're all in dialogue with uh, you know uh, you know the, the CEOs and executives not only of the companies that own the real estate uh, but the businesses that uh, are, are the tenants uh, in the buildings. Um, it, so much has changed um, since June, since April. Um, you know, we're constantly updating uh, our understanding of the pandemic um, and of ways in which we can be effective in working together, collaborating, um, that uh, we're having to, as, as Jill said, sort of a wait and see for some of this. Uh, what I would suggest is that you know, there are some folks out there who certainly are talking about the extremes. Either we go back to an environment that looks just like uh, the world pre-pandemic, or uh, you'll get some folks talking about how uh, we're going to abandon our cities en masse, um, and uh, the central business district uh, will be sort of a historical artifact. I don't think either of those is likely. Probably, uh, sort of my baseline scenario is one where work from home plays some role in the way we think about how we work. Um, And and perhaps- yeah, we're we're more deliberate about the office. We don't come in just for the sake of it. You know, what's the value of co-location in the office? Collaboration, idea sharing. For some uh, functions within the organization, supervision uh, plays uh, an important role in, in why we co-locate. Um, but does that mean that uh, every day I come in? Perhaps, you know, to Jill's point about efficiency, you know, if I had one day at home a week where uh, I work from home, yeah, uh, you know, that's going to be actually a really productive day. But I'm going to choose what tasks I perform on those days versus the ones I perform on days when I'm in the office. From a loca- you know, from a household location perspective, this does open up something really critical, which is that, you know, if I'm working in Manhattan five days a week, uh, given the you know the the congestion, the nature of the commute, I'm gonna I- I'm inclined to live fairly close in. As that balance shifts, let's say I'm only going in three days a week. That's going to open up a potentially wider range of household location decisions for me uh, because I'm willing to make that one-hour commute each way, you know, a few times a week. I'm just not willing to do it five times a week. When you combine that with sort of the fiscal outlook for cities like New York, the potential for you know tax policy to change in a way that's less favorable for high-income earners or second homeowners. You know, I think we're also going to have to keep a very, very close eye on the fiscal health of cities, uh, which is something that sort of has been emphasized by, you know, colleagues of uh, Gilles' and mine, uh, such as, you know, Bob Inman in the finance department at Warren. Chicago Um,
0: will have to go bankrupt eventually. They they cannot make their pension liabilities. I've looked at them. They're public information, and there's just no financial way that Chicago will, in time, be able to make their their pension obligations. They will either have to restructure, go bankrupt of some sort. Uh, There's just no mathematical solution otherwise.
2: Yeah, one what, what thing I'd add there, you know, is that for, uh, you know, for folks who, uh, you know, may have uh, exposure to Chicago or an interest in what sort of a municipal bankruptcy or municipal fiscal crisis can look like, um, you know, a great deal of work uh, done analyzing New York City and Philadelphia during their periods of fiscal crisis. Uh, again, Professor Inman, um, you know, uh, having produced the seminal work in Philadelphia's fiscal crisis and understanding sort of how, changes in tax rates uh, out of you know a well-intentioned desire to balance revenue and expenditures can you know undermine a city's competitiveness when we're thinking about chicago a a more contemporary point of comparison is something like detroit where detroit went through its period of bankruptcy and, and while you know that can seem troubling and frightening when we look at how detroit has performed on the other side of its bankruptcy um they were they came out of that process in a much better place a much better position for long-term growth um and uh you know sustainable growth than was the case going in and so and that's an example of how a, a bankruptcy reorganization on the level of an entire city can actually be a healthy process i agree
0: i completely agree with you i think that's a great point and this was an absolutely fantastic session you two were both really just fountains of wealth. And I couldn't be more thankful for the time you guys gave us. Uh, I, I learned a lot and
2: you know, I, uh, I look forward to chatting again. You guys are the best. Likewise, any chance to do something with Gilles. So thank you both. but uh, well, Thank you both you. as
1: well. That was great. I had a really great
0: time. Thank you. You're both super brilliant. And I thank you so, so much.